Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. On March 20th, 2003, the United States invaded Iraq. And shortly thereafter, Raith Abdul Ahad became an accidental journalist. Originally trained as an architect, he fell in as a translator with a group of foreign journalists in Baghdad, then as a photographer and war reporter for The Guardian and The Washington Post. In his new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Abdul Ahad documents the devastation of Baghdad from the sanctions of the 1990s to the aftermath of Saddam Hussein's fall. Punctuating his account are revealing interviews with his fellow Iraqis, from Sunni commanders and school teachers to old high school friends and insurgents of every stripe. Raith Abdul Ahad joins us this week to talk about the war and its effects, which continue to shape life in the region years after the American withdrawal. Thanks so much for talking to me, Raith. Thank you. It's been about a month here in the U.S. of coverage of the 20th anniversary. What have you thought of the Western media so far? I was very uh, intrigued about how come there is so much coverage this year. I mean, the, there was nothing around the 15th anniversary or the 10th anniversary. It suddenly the 20th anniversary had become a very big event. But I also couldn't believe how certain voices in the U.S. are still talking about how things are actually better and how the whole Iraq war was not a complete disaster. I mean, one of the things I found so crucial about your book is how few American voices there are in it, especially those kinds of voices. Uh, There are so many narratives of Americans coming back to write about, as you call it, quote, their heroic struggles in the lands of the Arabs. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to writing about decades of how war has devastated Iraq? Well, thank you. Uh, you know, as as I started working as a journalist and I was working in the streets, so covering the violence, talking to people, telling the, you know, the stories of fellow Iraqis and how they're surviving the war. And as these kind of stories came together and turned into a book, I realized at one point, uh, it was not intentional in the beginning, uh, because that's the kind of stories I would do, stories about Iraqis. And then I realized, you know, there are so many books about the Americans, and I intentionally have not a single voice, American voice in this book. I mean, you can see them as you read the book. They're manning checkpoints, sitting behind their tanks. But in the end, as I kind of started to think, what is the story of this book? It's the story of the people, but it's also the story of this nation, Iraq, and why all these upheavals and... Was the civil war a a kind of predestined thing that was bound to happen, or was it created by uh, through the intervention of foreign actors? And as I was, you know, going on through the, the book, I realized this is a book about Iraq and Iraqis, and it should not have an American voice because they have their own medium and they've been telling their stories. So let's tell the stories from a different perspective this time. Yeah. And I think the narrative that you tell is different, not just in the voices, but also sort of in your analysis, right? Because one of the narratives in America is that Iraq was a sectarian society when the United States invaded and sort of doomed to fall along Sunni and Shia lines. But that's not the story you tell about the Baghdad of your youth, even under Saddam Hussein. You know, you open the book with a vignette about looking at a photo of your high school friends and sort of guessing which person was which religion because you didn't know. And then later in the book, it would turn out you were were like wrong about many of them. 
I mean, it's very important to understand that Saddam, as a dictator, was not running a sectarian state, but he was running a police state in which he depended uh, upon his clan, close associates, uh, to run this kind of security state. Now, he and his clan happened to be Sunnis, but that doesn't mean that by association, all the Sunnis were the rulers of Iraq. Uh, it's a kind of a long, complicated issue, but by the 60s and 70s, the, the Iraqi society was a kind of middle-class society, especially in Baghdad, a middle-class society, uh, secular in outlook, uh, religion still playing a big role, but secular in outlook, and, 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 and sectarian marriage or trans-sectarian marriages was the most common thing. Uh, people did not intermarry between two different religions, but intermarrying between two different sects and, and ethnicities was the most common thing. Now, that society, Saddam did not tolerate any opposition to him. So, so of course, he went after the Shia political parties in the 80s that was trying to oppose him. And in the 90s, he went after the Sunni political parties, like Muslim Brotherhood or the Jihadis that tried to oppose him. In that society, uh, regional differences were more important. Accent uh, was more important. A social background was far more important than uh, one sect. So I played this game in my, my, you know, as the city was divided, as people were shooting at each other, as neighbors were being cleansed. I started playing this game with myself and, and going through these the old friends from childhood and trying to guess who was Sunni and who was Shia. And, uh, and you know, up till today, I still don't know half of them if they're Sunnis and Shia. And I love that. And I think that is, this is how we grew up. Now, post-2003, the Americans, and of course, the Iraqi political exiles who came with the Americans, introduced this very ethno-sectarian uh, outlook of Iraq. They, they started looking at the Iraqi society through the prism of who's Sunni, who's Shia, because it was a, a narrative built on Madlumiya, victimhood, the narrative of the Iraqi political exile. And in that narrative of Madlumiya, victimhood, if one part of the society is the victim, automatically the other part of the society were the victimizers. And if Saddam was the evil dictator, then, then by association, all the Sunnis were culprit in the crimes of Saddam, if not collaborators. And they were pushed into a corner and said, you know, you are the, the perpetrators of the crimes. And, and so be, built on that narrative, you have all the sectarian rhetoric that emerged in Iraq, coupled with disastrous security policies, the civil war was a de facto result of, of the policies and the narrative. It was not a, a something that had to happen. Uh, it happened just because the people who came to Iraq after the toppling of Saddam wanted that narrative to take place. One thing we don't really talk about that much in the U.S., at least, unless we're imposing them, is sanctions. Um, and they were imposed after America's first Gulf War. Um, but in a lot of ways, they laid the groundwork for the failures of what came after. And we usually just talk about how it's, you know, it's diplomatic pressure in contrast to military pressure. So what did 13 years of sanctions do to Iraq even before these exiles came back, even before these sectarian lines were imposed? I mean, the sanctions destroyed the Iraqi uh, society. This kind of secular middle class society was crushed by the sanctions. I mean... A teacher's salary became two dollars, and a policeman was five. So a bribe became a way to survive. I mean, the sanctions 
let alone the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who died directly because of the sanctions, because they no access to food, to medicine, the poverty, uh, water pollution. And, and it also had a huge impact on the society. It crushed it. Uh, the people felt humiliated. People were selling their furniture, selling their books, just trying to survive. Long queues outside government uh, food distribution centers. Suddenly, the proud Iraqis turned into a kind of a nation of hustlers. Something else which is very important about sanctions. In Iraq, the people who suffered from the sanctions were the normal Iraqis. It was not Saddam and his regime. It was not the people around him, his sons and cousins and nephews. They all benefited from the sanctions. And actually, they made much much more money because they controlled the black market. So the sanctions helped prolong the life of the regime, I would argue. As it is in, in different countries. I mean, look in Iran. Iran's been under sanctions for, what, 30 years? And it's surviving. Cuba... Sanctions never toppled the regime. Sanctions only punished the people living under that regime. Yeah, I mean, I think that that goes a huge way to explaining sort of this erosion of the concept of nationhood that you talk about. I mean, you you write about this concept of watan or nationhood quite a bit, as do a lot of the Iraqis you interview from Sunni commanders to school teachers. Everybody basically talks about this. Could you explain what this is and sort of why everyone is obsessed with its its loss or its integrity? Growing up in Iraq, especially since, uh, you know, all nations, all nation states are, you know, are fictions, are created through a fiction. And that fiction needs uh, people to believe in. And, and of course, when a nation state is there, uh, is there for 100 years, that fiction becomes a reality. And... The Iraqi fiction, the Iraqi narrative, or the Iraqi myth, let's call it, was based on this eternal state, uh, and especially drummed in our heads uh, throughout the Saddam regime, that Iraq was this eternal state, 5,000 years of civilization. It's it's a linear uh, a progress from uh, Hammurabi to the Assyrians, Babylonians, Muslim conquerors, and Saddam as the latest manifestation of this great nation. So the word Watan nation was drummed in our heads for so, so long that we all believed in it. The sanctions began the destruction of this idea of a, of a homeland, of a watan, when people started fleeing Iraq, when people hated Saddam so much that they, in association, hated the word watan because it was so associated with him. But also, uh, people needed to have other ways to survive. So they went back to the clan, to the family, to the tribe, to religion and religious education and religious networks prospered in the 90s because that became an, a, a parallel uh, network where people can organize and build solidarity when the state is no longer capable of providing these things for them. 2003, was the ultimate destruction of this idea of a Watan of a nation. Because suddenly we are told we are three people been locked into this eternal conflict, the Sunnis and the Shia and the Kurds, and that there is no Iraq actually. And Biden himself was one of the people who advocated dividing Iraq into three states. So for all those Iraqis, uh, the Sunni commander, the school teacher, all the struggle of the last 20 years is trying to reconcile these two facts together. The homeland, the nation that they grew up under, and the civil war and the devastation that they're witnessing every day in the street and the fragmentation of the reality of the state. It took 
nearly 18, 19 years until a moment in 2019 when people poured into the street uh, in these kind of Tishrin demonstrations. And the rallying cry was, Nurid Watan, we want a homeland. And that is, I think, is the moment when a new generation, transsectarian, came out, people who grew up under, uh, during the war, people who don't remember Saddam, and have recreated, recoined the word Watan in a more positive way. I was awed by the kind of access you got to what seemed like all groups in this conflict, every faction, you know, insurgents, militia groups, jihadis, the military, the secret police. I was also scared for you, especially when those people bragged about torture or when they asked you whether you knew how an AK-47 worked. How did you manage to talk to everyone, given that you, you know, were trying to navigate what seemed like endless factions? So, I mean, the fact is, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't have talked to everyone on my own. So I had to find someone who would vouch for me to introduce me to someone. So for each person I talked to, there are another 20 people are there in the shadows who've helped, organized, uh, vouched for me and guaranteed my safety. Um, I always wonder why do people kind of tell you things that, you know, you shouldn't know. And I think is is a kind of a mixture of vanity, probably, you know, a commander wants to show off, or or people are actually genuinely trying to show their own version of history. Um, I mean, for example, the issue of torture, the commander who was conducting these nights of torture wanted to give his own version of why he condones these acts of violence and, and human rights abuses. So it, it's a long, long, long process. I mean, you know, I would say writing the article is 1%, it's the 99% is trying to get access into the place safely. Yeah. I mean, what drove you to go back again and again into these situations? So I guess it's in the beginning what started as curiosity, which led me to kind of leave architecture and become a writer and journalist and travel across Iraq and see these things. I think that curiosity is still going on until this moment. And then in a way, it's kind of witnessing history, telling history, but also... Uh, it's it's very important to tell these stories. I think, personally, I don't know if my stories are any good, but I think it's very important to go to these places and come back and tell the stories to let the world, you know, see, uh, not understand or take action, but at least see the, the reality that's there beyond the walls of the green zone or the fortified bases, for example. I mean, how did you feel about becoming a war reporter in your own country? So the funny thing is, is you know, I found myself sucked into this world of journalism and first working as a you know translator, news assistant, then a reporter myself, and and a writer. In the beginning, for the for the first year, I I thought this is the only kind of journalism. I didn't know there was any other kind of journalism. I didn't know if we could be a reporter about something else. So eventually when, when I start meeting journalists and says, well, I write about history, I write about sports. I said, so you only write about this. You don't go to, you don't have to go to a war zone and, and, and do these things. So, so this is how it happened. It's not because I chose that, you know, that field. It's just because the Americans chose my neighborhood to, you know, to land their tanks in. It's, it's because I ended up in the middle of that uh, war and conflict this is how I kind of stumbled into the idea of, you know, conflict reporting, war reporting. 
How did you navigate, you know, talking to people who had been your neighbors or like the shop seller and then were suddenly being shot at or, you know, dead in the streets? I, I'm thinking of early in the book and during in the first year, you have an experience where I think it was a U.S. helicopter shooting down in the aftermath of a car bombing or something. And um, one of your fellow Iraqis turns to you and says, take pictures, show the world the American democracy. But then like six months earlier, there was another bombing in another street. And, you know, you're like, I have to tell, I have to take photos. I have to. But you felt like you were intruding on people and someone even tells you to stop. So, I mean, it kind of, the situation changes, of course. In the beginning, uh, when I first went to this first scene of the car bomb, I was mortified. I didn't know what to do. I could only hear the grief and the people crying and and the smoke. And I still, 20 years later, I'm still mortified every time I go to a scene of violence and and, and you have to stand there and absorb what's going around you. And, and a camera can be very intrusive uh, most of the times. Uh, well, kind of a notebook and a pencil is, and a pen is, is much more easy way of, of recording things. Uh, but also... You know, the strange thing about having the war coming to your neighborhood is there's a small cafe in, in not far from where, where I used to live in Baghdad, and I used to go there all the time. And then that cafe, which is not even a cafe, it's like two benches under a tree, and was first targeted by a suicide bomber, and then a car bomb, and then a second, third suicide bomber, second Suicide, like three times it was targeted, killing all the people sitting there. And and every time there's an explosion in this cafe, I tell myself, this is it, this is the last time no one would target this cafe again. And I go back sitting there, and then it's targeted again. It, it's a very strange, it's like a Russian roulette, you know, but also, for example, my high school, the street used to be it's like this kind of very quiet, shaded tree with lots of trees. It became a, a street where bodies were dumped during the Civil War. So the geography of the city changes so fast in, in during the conflict that you don't realize your old city anymore. Yeah. I mean, do you feel that way still? It's been 20 years since the Civil War began. Um, do you still sort of feel that? I guess, sense of, of dissociation with your own city? Do you feel like it is more your own city now? I mean, I would say it's more disassociation because in the past 20 years, the city changed so much. Um, you know, what started as a group of exiles who came on the back of American tanks turned to be these very strong, dominant religious political parties with armed militias. I mean, like all cities, the city keeps changing, but the changes that's been happening in Baghdad, let's say, in the last 50, 70 years, have always been, in one way or another, negative changes. So it goes into a period of peace and prosperity and then goes into violent conflict, a peace and, and then violent conflict. And we're still going through this violent conflict. And now, while there are no more car bombs in Baghdad and people are not killing each other, the poverty in Baghdad, the environmental disaster taking place there, the city's been expanding, population expanding, no, no investment in infrastructure, climate change, all these things are, again, negatively impacting the city. And that is a direct result of, you know, the corruption in the Iraqi state, which goes back to 2003. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, you talk about these sort of long cycles of like you have peace and prosperity and then you suddenly have negative changes. And um, it really does feel cyclical. And especially, you know, since 2003, um, I wonder how it felt, you know, for you to report on the growing sectarianism in Iraq, sort of the way the jihadis usurped Sunni resistance or, or took it over, you know, to risk your life again and again to sort of point out how this factionalism was being ignored, only to say the same thing sort of happen again. You know, and people say, oh, yes, no, 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 no. But we learned our lesson. Like, we know it'll be different this time with the Islamic State, for example. Um, did it feel a little bit like, I don't know, th hitting your I've head seen, against the wall? <laughs> I've seen this movie all before. Right. Um, so it is very frustrating, yes. Uh, but also... You know what I really love the stories I really love to tell are the stories that defy the the kind of the black and white narratives. Always finding this one person who, although is a Sunni, who although is um, you know fighting alongside the jihadis, he's he says something different and believes that violence is not the solution. So these are kind of the stories that. I would like to tell. But I also remember one night in Syria in 2011, and I'm sitting with this group of protesters who are out to demonstrate against the regime of Bashar al-Assad calling for democracy and, and all these nice things. And they started talking about the Sunnis and the Shia. And, and I tried to tell them, look, you know, the moment this whole Sunni Shia entered the Iraqi conversations, it led directly to a civil war. And they told me, hey, we are not like the Iraqis. We are Syrians. We've never been associated. We, we never had radical Islam in Syria. So we're not like the Iraqis. And of course, it, it's the same cycle as repeated. And so when people tell me we are not like those people, we're different, I just know exactly how the outcome of that conflict will be. Uh, so it is cyclical. It's true, but also kind of history, though tends to repeat itself, but also moves in weird directions. I mean, ISIS, again, the, the Sunnis repeated almost identical mistakes to that they made in 2003 and 2004 when they allied themselves to the, to the jihadis who, who had their own agendas and who wanted to come to Iraq to fight the Americans, but also to create this Islamic khilafah uh, in Iraq. Uh, what well, the Sunni Iraqis had different motives. They wanted to regain their position in the society, and they wanted to kind of cause for the Americans. They repeated the same mistake in 2013-14, which led to ISIS taking over of Mosul. And 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 the problem with all of these, uh, it's it's a small group of men, and they're always men, who take these decisions that eventually will bring so much destruction on their communities. And those men will not pay for it, you know. Uh, they will just leave. But it's the society, it's the community, it's the women, the children, the families, the common people who, who suffer from these idiotic uh, decisions. I want to ask you in particular about um, someone you write about who was in that original school photo that opens the book, your high school friend, Hassan name changed, whom you managed to find somewhat incredibly, like six years into the Civil War, and he was a, a surgeon at a military hospital in Baghdad. And you have this line where you say, like, the city itself, Hassan's mood swung wildly from disapproval to euphoria and back to despair. What was it like to reconnect with this old friend? And how does his own journey sort of parallel Iraq's journey? Because it felt like we did sort of follow him along 
for the the latter half of the war. Yes, I mean, I mean, the funny thing because where he lived, I almost presumed Hassan to be of a certain sect, and then when I go there and he's telling me a story, I realize he's from a different sect, and also while most of our friends, most of my friends in high school left the country, uh, either to work, for education, some left long before the war, some left after the war to save their families, and they lived in the West and in Dubai and other places. Hassan found himself stuck in the cycle of war, and not only stuck in the cycle of war, but he became one of the cogs in the machine of the, of the war by, because he was a military officer. And while I was going you know, dipping my feet into the war, you know, every few weeks, going back and forth. Hassan was living in through the whole dynamic of it. So he saw the violence and the the injustice of the war firsthand. And he was part of that. I mean, he was he was suffering from that. So all his struggle with himself was why did I have to go through all these things? This kind of sense that uh, why I was targeted by this. Of course, he wasn't targeted simply because of who he was, but because the whole society was going through this. But I think he still suffers from this anger at the injustice of, and it's not only the injustice of the war from 2003, but of all what happened to his family before that in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like his life in some ways tells not the whole story of Iraq, but definitely the story of, you know, a certain side of it. I want to quote something that you wrote after the American withdrawal. Technically, there's still more than 2,000 American troops in Iraq. Um, You write, Iraq was a democracy, at least according to the Constitution, with a free media, elections, and parliament. Yet it suffered the same illnesses that afflicted other oppressive Arab regimes. The failure of the state to provide its citizens with a dignified life, corrupt, kleptocratic political elites, oppressive security services involved in atrocious human rights abuses. You wrote that right before the protests of December 2012, at the tail end of the Arab Spring. It seems equally true of Iraq today, even after those Tishrin uprisings, which end your book in 2019. I wonder, do you feel like something has shifted a little bit in the nature of dissent in Iraq? You know, would you say that that statement is still true today? Absolutely, still true today and even more today because, you know, the these political parties or these, you know, institutions, organizations, militias have managed to capture the state uh, in a much in a much stronger way than 2012. So Tishreen as an uprising failed because all uprisings fail. But Tishreen established the benchmark, the point in which a reference point, in which everyone goes back and say, look what happened to Tishreen when the youth went down to the street and they nearly toppled this post-2003 state. Also, it was the point when sectarianism, in a way, ended in Iraq. My fear now is this corruption, this injustice that exists in Iraq. I mean, go to any police station in Iraq. Just go to any police station and and, and say that you're a witness. You'll be detained and you'll be tortured for days and weeks until your family come and pay a bribe to get you out of jail. So so that is corruption and 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 violence is so prevalent in Iraq today that I fear the next round of 
upheaval will will come very soon if this is not tackled. I mean, 70% of Iraqi populations under the age of 30. Uh, poverty are 40%. There are parts of Baghdad, let alone the south of the country, that are so poor with no running water, no sewage, no nothing. Those people are suffering from the injustice. And of course, in the, in the sectarian narrative, those people who are all Shia, where are supposed to be, were told in 2003 that you are going to be compensated against the imagined uh, sectarian discrimination that you suffered from. Now, 20 years later, those same people have been treated as nothing more than cannon fodder for all the militias and their wars, and 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 they're living in a horrible conditions. This is going to lead to another round of troubles in Iraq. What do you think the way out is? I mean, I'm not qualified to talk about solutions, but I think in my very simple mind, accountability is the solution. You know, 20 years later, none of the people who who led the war, executed the war, planned the war, people who committed massacres, uh, foreign or Iraqis against the Iraqi population, none of those people have been held accountable for what they have done. I don't mean putting them in jail or lining them against the wall. I just need accountability because without accountability, we can still have a parliament in Iraq with people who had blood in their hands, who still have blood in their hands, who were part of the sectarian civil war. Two weeks ago, I was in Baghdad and, and I spent the day with one militia commander and I wrote about him in, in a piece for the anniversary. And this guy, whose name was you know, struck and still strikes terror at the heart of every single Iraqi, Sunni or Shia. He and his men, I mean, kidnapped hundreds, if not more. One of the biggest mass graves in Baghdad is associated with himself. And this guy now drives around Baghdad and poses as a philanthropist, uh, gives salaries to orphans, uh, distribute frozen chicken for their lunches. And at the end of this tour, he takes me to a car park and he shows me these kind of 12 armored pickup trucks that he had looted from the Iraqi army. And he says, I keep them for the day that they might come useful. So this guy, a war criminal, a a murderer, is driving safely in Baghdad. Why? Because no one's been held accountable. You know, accountability, it means justice, means telling history properly, means understanding history, because without understanding our history, we will continue to repeat these kind of cyclical mistakes. We have links in the show notes to Raith Abdullahad's extraordinary book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War, as well as some of his own illustrations from the book. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.